Blog Talk Radio. Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like my page and join my Facebook group. Well, tonight's discussion will focus on exploring the history of archaeology, genetics, and the transatlantic slave trade with Sarah Abel. Sarah Abel is a British Ph.D. researcher based at the International Center for Research on Slavery in Paris, France. Abel specializes in the history of the slave resistance and race relations in Latin American and Caribbean. Overall, her research aims to look at how the rise in public access to genetic technologies and data is changing the ways in which we think about personal identity, ancestry, and race in different parts of the Atlantic world today. So let me give a warm welcome to Sarah Abel to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Bernice. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm really pleased to have you here, and I'm I'm certain that a lot of people are wondering well, how are you or what are you doing in the United States? So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what are you doing here right now and then tell us about your Ph.D. research. Okay. So I've been here in D.C. since January, and uh, I'm here as part of the, the field work for my Ph.D. research. So um 
so far, basically what I've been doing over the last few months, and as you mentioned, my, my research looks at the, the social impact of DNA ancestry testing um, on, on different societies. So what I've been doing since I've been here is to try and get in touch with people who have taken DNA ancestry tests to find out more about um, people's motivations for taking tests, and uh, how they look at the results, and then what they do with, uh, with those results once they have them. And uh, another part of what I'm doing here is also to try and speak to um, the people behind the, the creation of the test. So I'm, I'm interested in getting in touch with, uh, with the scientists and the, uh, you know, the people involved in the, in the creation of DNA tests as part of the, the ancestry testing industry here in the U.S. And, uh, and also experts such as yourself in uh, genealogy and, uh, and people you know, who have uh, some sort of an influence on the, on the public representation of, of ancestry testing and the way that, that this uh, practice is, is understood in, in the US. So I, I mean, I've been here already for a few months, but this is actually the, the second part of the fieldwork uh, that I've been doing for my PhD because Last summer, I spent three, three months in Brazil doing pretty much the same kind of thing, although hopefully we'll talk about that later. And uh, you know, just to tell you a bit more about, about my, uh, my PhD, I've, you know, I started that in um, September 2012, and as you said, I'm, I'm usually based in Paris. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm now in the, in the second year, halfway through the second year of my PhD, so I'm, I'm currently uh, finishing off my field work, and it's it's really great to talk to you today um, when I'm you know about halfway through through my period here, and uh, and uh, in about a month's time I'm going to be going back to to Paris to analyze my data, and uh, and then I guess start the the difficult task of of writing things up. Yes, well you know it's it's a probably very very timely that you are. Uh, examining some of the issues of DNA testing and and just, I guess, the whole perception that people are getting because they're now looking at their ancestry. I just received something today that a new um, My Origin is coming out through the population plan uh, finder with family tree DNA. So it, it seems like it's definitely a, a big business for people to want to know their their ethnic origin. So how did you become interested in studying the history of slavery and the African-American identity? Okay, so this is, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mention this just now when I was introducing my research, but um, one big part of, of my, my current research is that I'm focusing in particular on um, African descendant communities in, in the US and, and Brazil. So um, here in particular, I'm, I'm looking to, to get in touch with uh, African-Americans who've taken tests. And I think the thing is that this, you know, this, uh, as you said, it's, it's a phenomenon that's growing. The industry is growing. And that means that it's, it's uh, not just African-Americans who are taking DNA tests, but, you know, it's uh, the whole of America and it's, uh, it's different parts of the world as well. But you know, there's something there's something particular about the way uh, that um, uh, that ancestry testing affects um, the the African American community here, which which ties into the history of um, of slavery and the history of 
colonialism as well um, here in, in the US as in other parts of, of the Americas. And I became interested in, in researching this topic. Um, I can't even really put my finger on, on when it was, but uh, before I was doing this, I was, I was doing my, my BA and my, my master's at, at the University of Cambridge, and I was um, initially a languages student. So what I really liked about that course was the possibility to um, get into uh, lots of different aspects of, of the cultures of, of you know, different parts of, uh, of uh, not only Europe, but, but mainly Latin America and, and the Caribbean. So um, for a long time, I've been interested in, in uh, the, liter the literature of slavery and, and also you know, how that ties into to the history um, of slavery in, in the Caribbean, in, in the US, and in, in Latin America, and, and how that influences um, perceptions of identity today. So I think one of the, the earliest memories that I have of, uh, of being interested in the subject when I, was when I was... Um, I think maybe about 12 years old, and I was a big reader when I was a, a child, and uh, and I, you know, I would read any literature that I could get my hands on. And I remember reading um, "Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry" by Mildred D. Taylor, and uh, and I think this this was probably the first time that I really um, learned anything about the subject because you know, coming from England, uh, the history of slavery isn't really very present in our minds because. It's, uh, it seems so distant, it seems so far away, and I think a lot of people aren't really aware of the, of the um, impact that England had upon, you know, the, the hugely instrumental role that the country played in the slave trade. So, you know, being awakened to this kind of story was, was really, um, it was really a discovery for me, because at the time when I was reading it as a child, it seemed, and, and the story is about, um, is about the uh, the deep south here in the U.S. and and, and uh, racism as, as and race relations as seen through the eyes of of, uh, of children and um, and I remember at the time just thinking it was it was crazy to, that you know people would be discriminated against by the color of their skin and, and linking into that and then you know how this had its roots in in slavery and, and again it seemed to me uh, just an impossible idea the idea that that uh, someone could enslave another person. Not only that, but a whole system and a whole economy could be based on uh, on the idea of uh, some nations enslaving others and these mass uh, migrations and uh, you know forced migrations and and the whole terrible history of of uh, slavery and the impacts it's had and is still having up until today. So. You know, initially I was I was looking at, at slavery from a, a literary point of view and then a historical point of view, and then um, I really, when I was uh, applying for my PhD, I was I was looking to to do something a bit more contemporary, something that allowed me to get out of the archives and basically spend a bit more time just uh, just chatting with people, which is a great way to do research if you can if you can manage it. So um, so what I'm currently doing is a is more of a sociological um, cultural anthropological study, um, which is about, you know, the effects today of, uh, of that identity loss that, that went on through the, the transatlantic uh, trade in, in enslaved Africans and, uh, and looking at how people today are starting to try and pick up the pieces and trying to um, re-encounter those, those lost identities and those lost uh, cultures and, and traditions and names. 
Yes, and so what you're hoping is that your your research will give you better insight into how DNA uh, ancestry results can help people regain their identity. Is that part of what you're looking for or hoping that you might pick up in some of your research? Or just give us a little bit more uh, insight into your your expectations about your research. Okay, well, I mean, as, as you know, the, the DNA ancestry testing industry has, is a very new one. It's only been around since uh, the year 2000, and um, things have picked up pace very quickly, but it, we still don't have a very clear idea of uh, how people, you know, what people do with their results. What is it that motivates someone to pay? Um, I mean, now, now the prices have come down quite a lot, but even paying um, $99 for a test, which is kind of the... The, the general uh, standard market price for, for a test at the moment. I mean, some people you talk to, you say, well, would you pay $99 to, you know, to have someone look at your your you know, your, your DNA and tell you something about about where your your ancestors come from came from or you know your um, quote unquote ethnic composition and. Uh, some people say, yeah, absolutely, definitely worth it. And some people will just say, no, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, and I think, I think a part of that is, uh, is to do with how um, the tests are, are marketed, you know, the kind of expectations yes. that are built up in people. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. also, I think it, it taps into um, these kind of, uh, a certain desire that we have in, in some cultures. And I, I think, uh, this is true of the, the U.S. and, and partly true of, of the U.K. is this feeling that we, we live in this globalized world and, uh, you know, everyone's connected and we spend half our life on our phones or on the Internet and, you know, we have these double kind of electronic uh, personalities. Um, and we've lost touch with, with uh, traditional cultures. You know, we've lost touch with our our sense of origins, you know, we don't have folk songs anymore. We we maybe can't tell tell you, you know, the where all of our ancestors came from past two or three generations. And um, and you know, I think this this uh, if if you are a business person and if you tap into that kind of longing for for something a bit more uh, traditional and something a bit you know grounded in kind of mythology and in in the, in those old cultures and and uh, ways of life, you know that kind of tribal identity. I think um, I mean you'll find that if you sell it in the right peop- way, people will be very interested. Um, yes. So it's, I'm talking here mainly about about uh, the U.S. and the U.K. because uh, you know this is this is to do with the way that our um, national identities uh, makers think about about ourselves and make us think about the different groups that are included in the in the nation whereas if you look at other parts of um, perhaps places like Mexico or, or Brazil um, you maybe don't find the same kind of interest in in knowing about um, about these genealogies and these uh, these uh, old tribal identities because the the idea of national identity is much more inclusive you know it's uh, the the national identity in, in brazil of being brazilian is is uh, is very strong and i think in a way um that that buries uh, a lot of those other tendencies to uh, to try and look for for your own individual your familial ancestry elsewhere 
Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take, I mean, I'd like you to uh, talk more about Brazil, but let me just go back for a minute so that you can just talk about your research, because I understand it's part of a larger network based in Europe called Eurotask. And could you tell tell us more about the idea behind the network and the work that they are doing, and then we'll go into a little bit more depth about the methodology and, and the fact that the group has been traveling to various uh, countries. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it is really important to, to talk about my research as, as part of um, Eurotask because actually, um, you know, without without Eurotask, my, my project wouldn't exist. So it, it really makes a lot of sense to talk about the two things together. So Eurotask is, uh, is a research network um, which is, funded by uh, Marie Curie Actions, which is a funding body um, which is part of the, the European Union. So the way the way the network works is that there's, there's 13 PhD students and we're all based in different universities in, in different parts of Europe. So in uh, France, uh, like myself, or in Spain, Denmark, um, the UK, Iceland, Portugal, um, Holland as well. And then uh, each of the, the PhD students um, comes from a different part of the world. And this is, this is all part of the EU's philosophy of, uh, of getting people to, to move, you know, change countries and move places and, uh, and you know, see different parts of the world and kind of exchange, um, exchange ideas through kind of crossing borders and crossing cultures. So we've got uh, an incredibly varied mix of researchers from all parts of the world uh, New Zealand, St. Lucia, uh, Iceland, Spain, Canada, the US, Brazil, Germany, um, India, um, to name you know, uh, most of the countries in the list. And uh, so the idea is that we, we're all from different parts of the world and we're all specialists in, in different uh, disciplines. So quite a lot of the uh, researchers on the network uh, have something to do with genetics, so they're molecular biologists or um, you know, they're involved in uh, in bioinformatics, and um, there's also a cohort of archaeologists or bioarchaeologists, and uh, there's also historians and uh, and I'm a, a sort of historian slash uh, cultural anthropologist. So the idea is that um, the whole network looks at the 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 theme of of the transatlantic slave trade and. And the, the kind of broad aims are to look at the, the history and uh, the, the legacies, you know, be they social legacies or kind of the genetic legacies of, of, the, uh, of the trade um, from different points of view. And uh, so each individual um, PhD researcher has their own project, but within those, those projects, there, are, there is some crossover. So there are some people who are sharing the same samples, but looking at them from different points of view, you know, either from a, a health point of view or from um, the point of view of trying to use a sample to extract ancient DNA and try and, uh, try and learn more about the biogeographical origins of that DNA. So, but it's all, it's all um, based on the, on the idea of, of uh, the transatlantic slave trade and, and also using um, uh, samples and, and populations and, and points of view that look at different parts of the Americas and also 
uh, West Africa and, and Europe. So it's, it's trying to look at the Atlantic world and, and the effects of the trade um, from different points of view. And how many researchers are involved in this project? And I, I heard the disciplines, but I, I didn't hear the number of individuals. So there's, there's 13 uh, PhD students, but each PhD student has an advisor. And, uh, and then beyond that, um, there's uh, a number of other senior researchers who are kind of affiliated to, to, the, to the network. So, you know, there's really quite a, a large um, body of people. And um, I should say also that the, the network is um, it's, uh, coordinated from the University of Copenhagen. And, and the, it was the, the brainchild of, uh, of Dr. Hannes Schroeder, who, uh, who is a um, bioarchaeologist and an anthropologist by trade, but he's, he's now also working in, in genetics. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of um, where, the, uh, you know, where, the, where the network is, is coordinated, and, and that's, that's the hub of, of, our, of our research network. All right. Well, since you know, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that you all have been traveling around a bit with your research, so please give us an idea of the places you've gone. And I, actually, I'm going to name the, the places. <laughs> and you tell us what you have found uh, at in the different places and why you went there. So let's start with Portugal. Okay, so uh, Portugal was was uh, the second um, the second trip we did, and and there we were hosted by um, by uh, an institute of of genetics, and we were um, we were that was kind of uh, when we were still all getting to know each other, so we were learning a bit more about uh, each other's projects. We were still in the phase of of uh, of trying to you know, discuss different things and, and work out potential partnerships between between different students and different projects. So that was that was still very early on in, in the network. And uh, you know, part part of uh, the reason of going there is, is that it's um, it's one of the universities which is hosting one one of our PhD students. And and that project uh, initially was was sampling um, uh, it was sampling people. In uh, in Portugal, and trying to look at uh, at the influence of um, African uh, genomic markers in European populations. So that's kind of an, an aspect of the of the uh, history of of, um, of uh, the period of of the of the transatlantic trade, which is which is not often touched on. You know, the fact that it it not only moved. Uh, Forcibly moved Africans from West Africa towards the Americas, but also there was, you know, there were these migrations uh, towards Europe. You know, most of them forced, but some of them dating back further than that. And uh, so that that was that was kind of the main um, reason for being in in Portugal. Now, when you say sampling, are you speaking of taking a population and and sampling? Basically, questioning them or sampling, meaning taking biological samples. Well, in this case, it was it was a genetics project, so they were they were taking biological samples, and uh, okay. you know, there's I'm, I'm not entirely sure how they went about identifying people, but you know, there's a whole process of, of consent and finding finding populations that would be um, kind of informative in, in terms of looking at that um, African ancestry. 
Yes. And did you uh, go to any specific ports in Portugal where you knew there were uh, a large number of um, slaves were, were brought there? I mean, just tell us a little bit about how you selected where you went when you uh, entered the various uh, countries. Well, I mean, in the in the case of, of Portugal, it was uh, I mean the 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 project I'm referring to is uh, is part of one particular PhD student project. So I mean, the the sampling was taking on before we were there really, and, and uh, we were there for the whole network was just there for a for a few days. So it was more of a, an opportunity to to share ideas. But the the following um, the following uh, meetup that we had after that was um, was in the Dutch Caribbean actually. So and and this was. This was a very interesting meeting because it had much more of a hands-on aspect. So um, we were spending time in uh, in two different islands. One of them is called St. Martin, which is um, it's actually an island that's split in half, and half belongs to um, Holland, and the other half uh, is was historically um, owned by the French, and now they're in this um, kind of intermediate phase, I believe, where they're they're somewhere between independence and, and still, you know, having a kind of a cultural and uh, political affiliation to France. So we were in the, the Dutch part mainly, and, and aside from that, we also visited an island called St. Eustatius, um, which is mainly known as, as Statius. So it's a very a very tiny island. And uh, to go there today, you really, you really don't see very much. It looks um, kind of partially abandoned. If you look at the uh, the, the capital of the island, it's um, it's it's very very uh, chilled to say the least. There's uh, you know it's, it's kind of like a little village. And and what was really astounding while we were there was to um, go up to the 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 fort that they have um, there on the island and to look across the beaches. And and today when you look across that beach. Uh, you see people bathing and, uh, you know, a row of small shops and bars. But if you'd looked at that uh, a few centuries ago, what you would have seen was one of the biggest ports in the Caribbean, and it was uh, a kind of duty-free uh, trading port where people would come to bring, um, you know, different their different goods like uh, rum and uh uh, you know, different sugar and, and different um, different kind of trading goods. But another thing that was traded there was actually enslaved, uh, you know, enslaved Africans. So they had this these huge um, these huge kind of storehouses, I guess, for uh, for where where enslaved people were kept. And because uh, the the Caribbean was such a contested region, there was a lot of piracy and there were all, you know all these wars going on between the different European nations. Um, that acted as a as a kind of duty free place. So it was a place where you could still stop off and trade, even even if all all the different countries of of Europe were at war with one another. Uh, Sarah, they would like you uh, to repeat uh, the name of that island. It's called Saint Eustatius, and uh, normally it's just Saint known as Eustatius. Uh-huh. That's it. Okay. And, and what uh, did you? Did you do any digs? I mean, when you went there, since you know that that was definitely a place for uh, slaves to be traded. Yes. Well, we uh, we actually were involved in a in an archaeological dig while we were there. So there's a, a resident 
um, archaeological uh, um, kind of you know uh, uh, like a workshop there um, called Seekar, and they um, they hosted us, and they were actually starting a dig um, in what what was uh, just prior to us being there. It was uh, it was a big kind of uh, rubbish tip basically, and um, uh -huh. and they're starting to develop the area. So they they cleared part of it, and they looked at um, old maps of the area, and they'd uh, they'd identified that it was. Uh, originally a, a um, what looked like a, a village um, uh, as part of I believe it was it was part of an old plantation it was um, it was basically the the, the slave village um, and uh, so what we were doing was just uh, digging in the area and we were looking um, for signs in the in the soil of, of where there would have been structures so we were looking to try and see if we could make out the the kind of size of the of the uh, you know the houses of the people that would have been living there, and if we could get a sense of of uh, you know how big these places were, how they were being constructed, and um, and the idea is I think what they were hoping to do with that was um, to make a project where they would reconstruct um, not in the same place, but I think they were hoping to reconstruct the village to um, give visitors a, a, a better idea of of. Um, uh, you know the, the kind of structures that people were living in, and, and these were these were structures that would have been built by enslaved individuals themselves. So it was built by the community. So that tells you something about the kind of um, building styles that and the, the materials that were being used at the time. And did you find when you were there that there was even a discussion about the transatlantic slave trade and? Uh, or has that kind of memory just disappeared? Nobody's talking about it anymore. Well, on that particular island, um, it's. Uh, I mean, we we spent just a few days there, and and the uh, we didn't we didn't have so many discussions with. I mean, it's it's such a small population living there at the moment. So so there we we didn't we didn't um, spend that much time in in discussions. We were mainly you know looking at the site and uh, you know, being hosted by by this archaeological institution. But when we were back in St Martin, we um, we were involved. Actually, we set up a, a conference um, with uh, you know with some of the local community as well. And and uh, the conference was about um, about the the history and the archaeolo the archaeology of of, uh, of the trade and how it affected those particular islands and also the way that it's remembered today and the way that um, you know the way that the, the the local community interacts with that history and actually what what really came out of it was you know that we were seeing how how greatly politicized that history still is um, and the thing is. It's. Uh, I, I don't know if you've if you've ever been to the Caribbean uh, on holiday. For me, I mean, for me, it's. Uh, it was my first time in in um, in the Caribbean, and uh, and what really struck me, and I think a, a lot of a lot of us when when we were doing that trip was that, um, you know, we've we've moved on past uh, past the the end of of uh, slavery and colonialism. We're in the 21st century, but there's. Still, you know, still the islands, um, some of the islands really act as uh, as these sort of touristy sites, and uh, in the way, you know, you can you can see if you get up early in the morning, um, you go down to the beach before the cruise ships arrive and before you know before all the tourists arrive, 
um, you see all the locals on on the you know in in the on the beach, and uh, most people are, are, are engaged in setting at the beach, kind of raking the sand, and uh, just preparing for the tourists to arrive. And and it's still very evident that the that the the future that that these places have moved on to is um, is still being uh, part of a of a economy that that accommodates tourists. Basically, it's, it's oriented towards outsiders, mainly uh, Americans or, or Europeans, and you know people going there on holiday and treating it as a kind of um, you know, this kind of paradise, which mainly exists for the enjoyment of uh, of uh, basically not the people that live there. So you know this is something that's still you know, that that's very evident to um, to the people who who live there and, and are engaged in this economy. And um, and I think there's uh, there's a lot of tension that that still revolves around that and around the uh, the question of who governs the island and what is the the current um, political connection to uh, to the old um, colonial metropolis like uh, France and Holland. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, now we're we're moving beyond the the Dutch Caribbean, and so let's spend some time in Brazil because I'd really like you to just talk to us about what you discovered in Brazil. And and after you discuss Brazil, then we'll take a quick break. But let's just just tell us, give us a, a, a overview of what you uncovered in in Brazil. Okay, so Brazil was a trip that I went on myself. As I mentioned earlier, it was a part of my research, uh, my field work. So um, that was you know three months that I spent there on my own and uh, just trying to um, set up. Interviews with uh, with different people, um, both people who had taken DNA tests and and the scientists and who were who were involved in in creating the tests, and also um, public figures who who uh, who were involved in kind of the debates around um, what can be done with DNA and and how it's used and uh, and in and, and potentially in, in promoting um, the use of DNA tests. So. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, genealogists out there who are who are wondering um, how genealogy is done in Brazil, or you know, how many people are, are taking DNA tests. And I have to say, it's not that many. Um, I didn't find that many people who had taken commercial ancestry tests, for example, because uh, yeah, just for the simple fact that there there isn't an ancestry testing industry in Brazil. I think um, some of the, the reasons behind that are, are fairly evident. You know, on the one hand, there's not so many people with uh, with that extra disposable income to, to spend on DNA testing. And actually, there was there was one company um, that that was offering ancestry tests for a while, but they had so little interest that uh, that they gave it up and, you know, stopped offering them. And, uh, and the other thing is that um, but there's there's in Brazil there's this uh a very different uh sense of national identity to the one here in, in the US, for example. So the the whole um you know, after after the end of um of the, the period of slavery in Brazil, which went on to quite late into the nineteenth century, um uh -huh. then there was a period of, of uh trying to understand well, trying to work out um what would what would we do with the identity of Brazil? How would we resolve 
you know, all these different peoples, the, the native um, indigenous people who, who were living there, you know, uh, since before the arrival of, of the Portuguese and then, you know, then uh, Portuguese immigrants and then the, the uh, Africans who'd, who'd been taken there forcibly. How do you, what do you do with that huge mix of people? Because it was really a, a mix, much more than, than it was here in, in the U.S. Because you know Portugal is such a small country that they really their their strategy for for um, kind of filling up the entire huge territory of Brazil was was just that was to uh, to try and uh, mix and you know they didn't have the same kind of um, qualms about about. Uh, about reproducing um, and with, you know, with indigenous people or, or with uh, with enslaved Africans, and and then, you know, uh, and then recognizing the, the the children that 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 came out of those uh, relationships. So, um, so you know, early in the 20th century, there was this uh, this uh, notion that came about this notion of uh, of a, a mixed Brazilian identity and that that very mixture was what defined the, the whole country and it was what bound everyone together because in a in a sense you know if you accept that everyone is equally mixed and equally different then that that's something that that brings a common unity to, to the whole country um, yes it does so, mm -hmm. so so based on that I think that there's People, you know, the Brazilian identity is is very, very strong. That that idea is that still exists today. It's, I mean, it's not unquestioned. People people um, are not ignorant to the fact that that forms of prejudice um, and very deep rooted prejudice still still exist, but you know, in quite a different way to to the prejudice that that we encounter here in the U.S. But you know, the the kind of force of of uh, and the pride of of that sense of being Brazilian in a, in a way, I think, kind of um it's i mean it stops people from from really thinking too much or or really uh paying you know attributing much importance to the idea of looking for another identity elsewhere looking for you know an extra um ancestral identity or a, or a kind of gen genetic identity so basically you're saying that it 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 for them it doesn't make any sense to take a dna test for ancestry composition, for well, them, I mean, if they're going to take a um, DNA test, it may not be for their ancestry composition. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Well, um, the thing is that if when I when I mentioned the the idea of the test, a lot of people didn't know that that existed, and when I did mention it, a lot of people would just say, "Well, we're all mixed, so you know, what is there really to know?" On the other hand, there's uh, yeah, there are other people who said, yeah, well, I'd love to know because you know I know we're all mixed and I know I'm a complete mix, but I'd really like to know which I have more of, you know, which, what am I more um, African or more uh, indigenous uh, Brazilian or am I more European? So you know, some people saw that as something that that would be of interest, but they just weren't necessarily willing to pay uh, money to find it out because in a way, it, it's uh, you know, you're not you're not really finding out anything that you didn't already expect to know. So right. uh, a lot a lot of the people that I that I interviewed had actually done DNA tests as part of scientific research. So they they had done it for free, and uh, and that you know that that builds up all, all kinds of different expectations about about what the test results might tell you. And uh, just the last thing to mention is that the the other 
real peculiarity of Brazil is that, um, and and you know, I think I think this is the 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 thing that that most draws it, people's attentions in Brazil uh, attention in Brazil is that uh, you can't really make any um, deductions about people's genomic ancestry or you know, their genomic composition just by looking at them. Um, because it, it is it's a country that has this uh, you know this history of a very real history of of uh, you know uh, mixture and and you know that that has a the effect that that's had on the the population is to really um, is just to make it fairly um, unpredictable what what kind of appearance you're going to get out of a specific genetic mixture so you can have it's not it's not unusual for you to have a family where all of the children have different skin colors or different hair textures or you know for even you to have a family where where the the children are mainly kind of light-skinned European looking but their their cousins are more African looking um, uh -huh. so so one of you know the the main kind of interest there is that uh although everyone everyone in a way knows what to expect in terms of uh you know they know that there's there's going to be a certain amount of um african european and indigenous components in their in their um genomic uh composition it's you you really can't predict um which is going to you know what what the proportions are going to be from from just looking at a person. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Now there's a comment in the uh, chat that said that well um, they're still color stratified though you know the lighter folks are in power, the darker people are the poor people and without powder uh, power. And um, this is Angela and she says she's read of a few. A few she has read of the few positive images of darker people in the local press. Uh, did you pick that up when you were in the country? Well, yeah, this is this is certainly the case, and and uh, I mean, I, I'd say on the on the sort of uh, general level that that's certainly true. That there's um, there's very much still, um, even though you know it's very difficult to be to be racist in a in. Um, I would say in a, a classic sense in Brazil, um, because uh, you know it, it's very difficult to to harbour racial hatred towards someone that looks like your brother or your sister, you know, and that and that's a real, very real possibility. So there's not this kind of division uh, between um, people of of different skin colours, not not to the same extent as as you would find here in the US, because of the very particular history of of uh, of um, uh, segregation here. So, but in uh -huh. Brazil, I mean, it's certainly true to say that there is this deep-rooted sense of prejudice against uh, against darker colours and kind of more African-looking um, uh, appearances. So, uh, you know, there's. Uh, it, I think I think that things are, are changing, and and it, it depends on on different parts of the country. So that you know, if you look at, um, I spent quite a lot of time in Bahia. Which is commonly cited as um, the the blackest region um, of the world outside of Ni Nigeria in terms of the, the percentage of of people who um, you know who identify as being uh, black or of African descent. So, you know, uh, it's and it was a, a, a part of the country and a part of the the whole continent that was that received uh, you know, the greatest um, greatest influx of of enslaved Africans. And uh, the you know it's so 
in Bahia, you have this sense of really strong regional identity where where people, uh, you know, it's often said that, that Bahia is a very African part of Brazil and people really take that to heart and they really, um, you know, they, they really uh, get into the, the music and the, you know, the culture and the dances the and culture, the yeah. and, and all of mm-hmm. these things are, are very strong and very important to, to people no matter what they look like in, in Bahia. I mean, I, I had uh, people who who were very pale looking um who participated in my study and and you know they if they got their their test results back and it said that they were they had a majority of for example european ancestry they would say but i was sure that i was mainly you know that i mainly had african ancestry because i've always felt this affinity to africa just because of that you know strong um Bayan identity and yet at the same time uh, and it seems very paradoxical uh uh, desire not to be dark looking, you know, not to have um, dark colored skin, not to have, um, you know, kind of Afro hair and, and that kind of thing. And I think that that's changing now. There's more of a um, politicized movement to empower um, people of African descent and to, to recognize uh, uh, and people say, you know, to kind of accept or to, um, you know, uh, to assume your identity as as, uh, as being black um so i think ch- things are changing a certain amount um but but it is it's true that there there is still this uh, this idea you know there's a lot of racial stereotyping and there's this idea that you know if you have a child you you kind of hope that it's going to come out light-skinned because you know the world will be an easier place for a light-skinned child to move in Mhm. Yes. I mean, there are several comments coming out of the chat. You know, one is that you know that is the culture, though the way folks think and and are taught to think like that, which is which in a way is is unfortunate. Uh, but what we're going to do is take a break and then come back. You've been talking for a while, and I promised you to give you a break <laughs> midway through <laughs> it, but <laughs> the the topic was very interesting. So just a quick break, and we'll come right back. Okay. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Sarah Abel. Sarah is a British Ph.D. researcher based at the International Center for Research on Slavery. And she has been discussing the history of archaeology, genetics, and the transatlantic slave trade, and giving us an idea of what 13 researchers have been doing over the last year and a half. So we're going to move to Ghana and Senegal. Tell us, what did you encounter in Ghana? But before I do that, Sarah, there is a question coming out, so I'm going to go ahead on and ask you this question because it relates to Brazil. And the, 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 the chatter, Angela, is saying, I wonder what the elders think of themselves. Do they embrace their Africanness, or are they Brazilians first who happen to have African roots? Well, now there's a whole um, there's a whole sociological and uh, national debate in a nutshell um, because uh, you know at the moment that there's in Brazil there's really a lot of change going on in in the way that people think about. Um, Black identity, in particular, and kind of uh, the idea of being African of African descent, because as I say, up until up until fairly recently, um, the idea of of being Brazilian was was all encompassing. So you know, you didn't you didn't need anything much more than that, and uh, and you know, you possibly didn't want to stand out. And I think that um, initially, for you know. A, a, Black movement of sorts has, has existed in in Brazil since the early 20th century, but in, initially it was uh, it was all about um, trying to to help um, people of African descent to to fit in, you know, to be less uh, well, I mean, to to be less black, I guess, to be to be more um, you know work to, more towards the kind of um, you know the kind of European. Um, Ideal, and uh, and I mean I think I think this is the case in in lots of lots of parts of of, of the Americas in the, in the period after after the end of of, of slavery, um, but you know recently there's been a lot of changes because uh, in the last um, in the last 15 years or so there's been this um, political movement towards uh, installing a, a system of um, racial quotas uh, to to give uh, a, an access to university to, to students of more kind of diverse um, backgrounds, by, by which we mean um, you know people of diverse skin colours, because there was this uh, you know until recently uh, universities in Brazil were very white institutions, and that you know the students were typically uh, light skinned, and and that that yeah speaks a lot of um, of people's uh, ideals of you know. Uh, and, and the kind of stereotypes of, of uh, you know, intelligence and success, and you know, which which uh, colours and which groups are kind of desirable and and which are going to succeed in society. So, this whole debate has has brought around a lot of questions about just that. You know, what is it to be um, to be uh, black and Brazilian, or to be of African descent and and be Brazilian? And um, 
it really depends on depends on different people. A lot of people insist that uh, you know people of, of all different colors and backgrounds insist that the most important thing about uh, being Brazilian is just that being Brazilian. Brazilian comes first, and that's the way of um, you know even even if uh, there are these persistent problems of, of prejudice and uh, and discrimination. People don't fight about it um, generally. You know, people people have got along, and and you don't get segregation um, in kind of informal social settings, whereas you do in in jobs and and university, for example. And in a sense, mm-hmm. there is this this uh, this idea that you know things aren't perfect, and but there there is something great about this kind of easygoing uh, acceptance of of all you know all immigrants and all you know all kind of um, that you know, Brazilianness uh, it it's, uh, it encompasses everything, and yet you know, if you look at um, at Bahia, for example, there's this this very um, old and you know, venerated cult- culture of Candomblé uh, uh, and some of the the Afro-Brazilian re- religions, which um, you know that the the uh, elders of those religions are um, people of African descent who you know who have also you know made a life's work of, of Preserving and and also I think keeping um, keeping hidden their own and keep, you know keeping um, keeping guard of their their own uh, cultures and traditions, which part you know uh, a great part of that comes directly from from Africa and you know uh, from traditions in 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 parts of West Africa, um, but they've they've evolved and they've uh, you know they've changed in in kind of syncretic ways as as uh, as they've had to adapt to um, to Brazilian culture as well. So I think it's a it's a very complex question, and, and you'll find all kinds of different um, different responses and different points of view. But you know that certainly exists. There certainly are many people who um, who try and keep hold simultaneously of of, of that um, sense of African culture and, and that sense of you know being of African descent, and yet keep that at the same time with a sense of being Brazilian in a, in a very full way. Yes, yes. Well, let's move on to Ghana and what your team uncovered uh, in Ghana. Okay, well, this, this uh, trip is very, um, it's very fresh in my mind because actually I, I just got back um, from, from a kind of uh, back-to-back trip to um, Ghana and to Senegal um, two weeks ago. So, so I you know very recently met up with the rest of the of the network, and uh, we spent first of all um, six days in in uh, Accra in Ghana, and we were hosted by by the University of Ghana um, and by the archaeology department. And the first part of of that trip um, the, involved a couple of um, visits. To some of the old uh, fortresses along the the coast of Ghana. So these are um, sites of memory, and they're, they're the places where um, African captives were were held sometimes for a period of of uh, months, you know, two or three months, while they were essentially waiting for the next um, the next you know slave ship to come along. They would be loaded on, and and uh, they would embark upon the the middle passage. So. These are these are sites that have remained. Um, not all of them, I think, but you know there there are some forts which remain intact and are now um, they exist mainly as, as museums and uh, 
and I think they mainly catered to to tourists, uh, you know, American or Brazilian or, or European tourists who who go there precisely to. Um, and in many cases, you, you get uh, what's known as kind of um, heritage tourism or roots tourism. So it's it's people of African descent who are going back there to to look at the the last places of embarkation of of um, at least some of their their ancestors. And um, and there's a there's a certain poignancy about about being in those places. Um, and yet at the same time, it's they're they're by no means these kind of haunted castles or anything like that. They um, are still at the heart of of uh, thriving communities, market communities, and um, and being there is uh, you know when when you go there as a tourist, you. Uh, step off the bus and you're you're inundated you're you're completely surrounded by people selling you things and uh and you know that that's uh i guess the the uh you know one one of the main activities as as a tourist in uh in west africa is is you you perhaps go to see the the sites of heritage and you you're probably going to come back with a with a, a pocket full of um of necklaces and of uh you know uh these uh these uh these touristic objects which which now make a part of you know a very important part of of the economy for these for these uh communities but while you're there i mean you you're talking about it from a tourism perspective, but when you're looking at it from uh the the transatlantic slave trade. How uh, do the local people, beyond trying to sell it as as a tourist uh, attraction, how did you find their whole reaction to the transatlantic slave trade? Was there that degree of sensitivity about losing a brother, losing a sister? Uh, did they talk about it? Just share with us what you your team gathered. Well, the the experience that we had, we went to um, two different forts in, in Ghana. One is called um, Cape Coast, and the other is called Almina. And uh, and after that, actually, so the the following week, we we were in Senegal, and we were in, in an island called Gore, which is uh, which you know I'm, I might as well mention now because we we kind of repeated the same the same process in in Senegal as as we had in in um, in Ghana. So. In each of the places, uh, you know, there's the option of, of having a guided tour, and uh, which is, is given by a you know a local expert and perhaps a, a member of the university. And um, and you know, these are these places. When you look at them, um, I think what what's unsettling when you when you visit these castles is there's there's something almost beautiful about about them and um, they're, they're whitewashed and uh, you know now they've been like ever so clean from the outside and very kind of picturesque and you know against the, the background of, of the ocean and uh, you know next to these beaches and palm trees and all the rest of it there's something um, unsettlingly uh, beautiful and and uh, and yeah, strange about that. Um, but when you go into them, you're given these guided tours, and you're you're taken into into these closed uh, kind of dungeons and these dank, dark rooms, and and it's really impressed upon you. 
um, you know, the conditions that, that people would have been kept in. And the thing is, the, you know, the, the inside of the forts is, is not quite the way that it, it was, you know, back in, in, the, in the period of slavery. There have been structural modifications and uh, they, uh, you know, usually you're, you're told about how, um, you know, how captives would uh, be led from room to room or, you know, where they would be kept, where was the room, you know, the small room that was that was reserved for troublemakers where they would be punished and they would be basically left in there to die. And these are, these are very, it's just uh, terrible, terrible um, stories which were taking place over the course of centuries. Um, and there's, you know, that, that obviously leaves a, an impression upon you and there's, there's a, a great solemnity um, in that. And yet at the same time, I think that um, something that was, that was quite curious is that there's, there's a tendency in these guides, uh, guided tours to really um, exaggerate the, uh, the magnitude of, of, the, of the trade. So the, the statistics that were cited were some maybe, you know, nearly nine or 10 times the, the, the statistics that are usually quoted in terms of the, the amount of um, people that were involved in the slave, in the slave trade or the, people, the amount of people that were, um, that were uh, sent off to, to the new world from these, from these ports. And I think, you know, that's very curious because if you, if you, if you look at the kind of official uh, verified figures, which uh, and by no means the, the final figures, historians are still doing work on, on the archives. And there's always a, a component that of you know the the amount of lives that were lost um, in the in the interior of, of the continent. You know, on, on the way people being trafficked from from the interior towards the coast, there, there must have been many uh, hundreds of thousands of lives lost there and there's, there's really no way of finding you know finding out the, the the total number but i mean if you if you look at the official statistics which are usually sort of somewhere between 10 and 13 um, million people were you know were were um took the the middle passage i think that that's already staggering it's it's already a, a mind-boggling figure so it's it's i think it's interesting to see this tendency to exaggerate to go into you know hundreds of, of millions of, of people and and uh and i think i think there's um you, you reach a point at which you're you're being told about these gruesome stories and this you know you're really uh the guides really try to impress upon you the the terrible conditions and you know the the disease and all the rest of it and there's there's only there's a, there comes a point where you can't feel something when someone's telling you what to feel you the, the place in a, in a way speaks for itself um you know the size of the rooms and uh, the lack of light the humidity and uh and i think it's it's something that that will leave a different impact on on every different person that that visits right so it's, you know beside the whole tourism part of it though how did you all engage the the local people in the discussion about the transatlantic slave trade. I'm not talking about the tourist group, but the others who were a part of your, your research team. And uh, what did they have to say, and what kind of documents were you able to find to, to support some of the stories that were shared with you? 
Okay, well, one you know, one of the the really interesting parts of the trip was uh, was that we we spent time with uh, with researchers from both from the University of Ghana and and the University um, Sheikh Anta Diop, which is uh, the university in Dakar, and uh, and there we were talking to students and to to uh, to researchers, and um, on the one hand. Uh, a lot of what they had to say to us was that you know there's there's currently research going on in in uh, West Africa on uh, archaeological sites and historical research that's being done uh, into the, the the history of of, of the trade, but it's and you know the history of slavery in those parts of the world. But it's you know, they're very they're very complex histories, and there's not necessarily enough work and enough kind of sophisticated work um, being done to really um you know it's it's not necessarily something that uh that people are, are prepared to 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 talk about or something that is seen as kind of a, a priority a priority in terms of um a subject of study as is the case i think in in uh, in europe and and you know can be can be the case in in parts of the americas there's a certain resistance to for the idea of going back and and uh, and looking at this this painful history and and of course, one of the one of the um, very difficult points to broach is, uh, you know, the, the the fact that that part of the trade was also uh, involved um, Africans uh, of you know of some ethnic groups and some tribes enslaving other Africans, and and you know, uh, depending on who you talk to, people try and get around this by saying, well, yes, but you know, really, the, the you know, this wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the Europeans and other people will say, well, no, actually, you know, slavery was widespread in, in West Africa and across the con continent, although it wasn't the same kind of thing, you know, enslaved people were still people, whereas uh, the real kind of terrible novelty of, of the uh, transatlantic trade was that it really deprived people of their humanity. They were no longer seen as, as people, but as, as uh, goods. And... Um, so, so one of the things uh, that we did while while we were there was uh, was an exercise where we we shared some documents with uh, with the local researchers and the local students, and these are a, a list of names um, taken from the embarkation list, um, which uh, which can be found on a on an internet um, site actually called um, it's called slavevoyages.org, and it's it's um it's called the transatlantic slave database and this is a, a huge compilation of the embarkation records um from various different ports in in west africa and and in in the new world and so what we did was to um download some of the lists of of names um which belong to to the ports closest to to the places we visited so ports in ghana and, and ports in um senegambia and then we we gave these lists uh to the local researchers and local students, and we asked them to look at the names and tell us if there were any that they could identify and any that they could match to a specific um, ethnic group or a specific region, or if there were any names that were actually not names but were words and you know things that could be translated. And part of the idea of, of doing this is uh, is to well, you know, when you look at a list of names, it's it's just it's just that you know you look at you look at the names, you think well. These are all people that's got little items of, of information, their age, their sex, 
Um, but we were hoping that by by looking um, at them with uh, with local researchers, we we would be able to get a little bit more information. We'd start seeing a bit more of a of a uh, you know we'd start seeing patterns of um, which kind of groups were you know did these people belong to, and what does that say about about the um, you know the the kind of demographics of the trade, and and also you know what. What extra information can that give us, and how can that make us think uh, differently about these people? And I think you know a great part, and, and what should be a great part, and is also a great challenge of, of researching um, this history is is to try and find ways of returning the, the humanity to, to these people, not just seeing them as um, goods or as items as they're listed on on these uh, registers, but actually seeing, you know, who were these people? What does their name say about them and where they came from? Right. Well, can you give us an idea? Because this is really interesting that you would take the the list of names and then have them uh, try to connect with the specific uh, ethnic groups. So give us maybe a couple of names, maybe more if you have them, just to give us an idea of how that uh, exercise turned out. Well, you know, one one of the first things when uh, we were looking at the at the list for Ghana, for example, one of the, the very um, immediately identifiable sets of names was, uh, was uh, the Akan names. So, um, these these names are interesting. They you know belonging to the Akan uh, ethno linguistic group. They uh, they're names that um, you can identify very easily because they refer to days of the week. So when uh, you know when you're born, according to the the day that you're born and whether you're a girl or a boy, you you're you're given a specific name. So you know the the names become very common and they're very easy to recognise. And uh, although the 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 spelling is different, um, it's you know, it's really very easy to pick them out. And actually, I've been looking at the, the list because I, I organized this, this part of the research. And I'd been looking at the list before um, before I arrived in, in Ghana. And, and when I did arrive, the first thing that I noticed was that I was passing all these advertisements for Coca-Cola. And, uh, and you know, Coke, I, I hate to, to give extra um, commercial airtime to, to Coca-Cola, but uh, it's worth mentioning that they're, they're doing this um, this campaign where they uh, write the name of you know, the names of different people on Coke bottles and then they invite you to share the bottle with a friend. So the the campaign that they're doing in Ghana uses Akan names. So you were seeing names like uh, Kwame and Kwesi and um, uh, Ya and uh, you know these uh, easily recognisable names and they would say. Um, you know, Thursday born, uh, confident and sassy and, and you know, all this uh, this kind of made up stuff. But it, what really immediately struck me was just that these names haven't changed. They haven't changed in 200 years. You look at a list now and it, you find a name that uh, belongs to, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Ghanaians today. So that was the first thing, you know, and, and one of one of the research was able to pick out the name of his grandmother you know, it wasn't his actual grandmother but it was her her own name and he he found that on the on on one of the lists and you know i think it was quite poignant for him to to see a name that really struck a, a personal chord with him um on on one of these uh these registers now some of the some of the other names were quite interesting because um some of them were were 
actually not not names but but seem to be phrases so you know it, it's a uh, one of the difficulties in doing this kind of exercise is that within Ghana there are um, I don't know how many different languages and and if you don't know what what language the name is in then you have to make a guess according to what you're familiar with so um, we can't be a hundred percent certain that uh, of, of these translations but some of them stood out and uh, and seemed to be quite clear. So there's one uh, which was uh, a 13 year old boy who was embarked in 1828 and uh, and the name is written Amamelone. And uh, instantly uh, the you know, the Ghanaian researchers said, oh well this this looks like it's an airway um, word, not a name but a word. And uh, and what it translates as is one who does not agree and uh, which is which I think is fascinating because uh, then it raises the question of well this was this actually a name that was given to the boy because he was just really rebellious and disagreeable or mm-hmm. was it actually a statement was because you know presumably the way these names were written down was that you would um, have the administrator going around asking people for their name and they'd have a local interpreter and the person would just say a name and you know it would get written down but the the administrator didn't know what the name meant they had no idea what they were writing down so was it actually him saying you know tell me tell me your name and the uh the child replying well i don't agree <laughs> you know i, I don't want to <laughs> and uh and so, you know, that's, there's a, there's and so that's what was written yes yeah i mean that's and it just uh remains there in the register as a, a kind of enigma but i i think that's that's very interesting and there's there's a handful of, of ones like that you know of, of, on different variations of um you know do you know me or you know um some some people seem to be saying uh seem to have said um something which wasn't a name but seemed more like a, a salute um you know the way that you would salute a chief uh or you know it wasn't clear as to whether they were ironically saluting the, the colonial administrator or if they were um making an ironic pun uh, where they would which would mean that they would always be uh addressed to as a chief um in future if they gave that name so you know i think what's really interesting to point out is that there are these um you know even from from uh the very beginning there are these signs of resistance which are which are characteristic of, of the entire um history of of the the middle passage and and uh and of um you know life as an enslaved individual in in uh, in the new world it's uh, there are always these these um stories of resistance you know in small ways or in 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 uh, more greater kind of organized rebellions there's, there's, there was always um opposition there was always uh resistance to slavery right so uh another question coming out of the chat well um so beyond showing the list to the local researchers, was there some locally based research conducted there as well? Well, there's um, one of our researchers, uh, one of our PhD students is actually still there. So um, his project looks at um, the memorialization of slavery. And so it's another another project that looks at, um, uh, looks at contemporary masses. So it looks at how um how uh we go about thinking about uh you know creating memorials or or statues or um or museums um around 
the history of slavery in, you know, in different parts of the world and what that says about the kind of public debates that go on and, and about the, the kind of politics of, of representing this, you know, troubling and contested history. So he's actually um, stayed there. He's in, in Ghana at the moment and uh, he's going to be working on um, on the, uh, the the slave fortresses. Um, another one of our of our um, colleagues is is going to be going back to West Africa this summer, and he's um, he's doing more of this historical work where he's he's taking these archive documents and and he's going and consulting local researchers and and uh, and trying to um, find out more about the the origins of some of the individuals and some of the names that appear in in the archives. And aside from that, there's also um, there's also these uh, genetic projects which are which are looking at the at, you know popula population genetics in in Africa, and uh, while I don't think anyone's um, doing any any uh, sampling for those projects at the moment in Africa from our team, there's uh, you know people were trying to make contacts with uh, with local researchers because one of the one of the real challenges with um, Going back to you know my uh, initial uh, project and, and the, the this question of uh, DNA ancestry testing and, and tracing your your um, your DNA back to back to West Africa, one of the real challenges with interpreting that information is the fact that in many cases and, and this is true all over the world, I think um, what you see what you can read in genetics in you know the the DNA of a person or of a population doesn't necessarily co correspond to cultural identities. So you don't necessarily have um, genetic markers that correspond neatly and uh, concretely to, to one specific tribe, for example. And I think you know, this, this becomes um, an issue when we look at um, some uh, the way uh, uh, DNA ancestry tests are being sold in, in, uh, in the US at the moment because uh, a lot of the time we're, we're kind of led to led to believe that that DNA gives us, us a very definite and concrete answer about um, about the kind of cultural origins of, of our ancestors and uh, and actually the picture is, is much more complex and, and just the very um, nature of, of uh, you know tribal identity and, and ethnic identity is uh, is so complicated um, that it, it really it doesn't correspond necessarily to to genetic data in any kind of straightforward way well that's very interesting that you would say that because you know this this is big business right now and individuals are are being so genetic tests of which they would identify the, the tribal uh, uh, Groups that they they have markers that represent, and so you know I know you 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 met with Dr. Uh, Hay Haywood um, at at in Boston uh, just to talk about that, but it it is an issue. I mean, all of these companies are are giving you regions of the country, and and people are walking around saying I'm Cameroonian, I'm Ghanaian, I'm a Senegalese, so. Uh, What's going on here? Are you saying it's so much more complex? Certainly, because of the whole culture. But what else is going on? Are we missing something? Are we being sold something that's really not valid? Well, I think I think that the um, you know if you if you if you take it 
on a on a very basic level um if you take a a, a dna ancestry test and you're hoping for that uh, test to give you back an identity i think you have to think think twice about that because um you know identity is is uh, sort of generally speaking is is not um genetically constructed it's uh, and and aside from that it's um it, it it's very it's a very fluid concept it's something that can change over you know the matter of a lifetime and um it's you know i think what you need to ask yourself is why you know why look for for these identities in uh, in dna and of course part of the the, the the answer to that is that when you're when you're interested in genealogical research then there is a there comes a time uh when you can't get any more answers without, uh, you know, without moving uh, away from the paper trail. And in that sense, um, DNA can be can be a, a very good resource. Um, but I think not in the sense of of kind of using it blindly, um, you know, taking a test and fully accepting the results. I think that that a much better way of using DNA in terms of a genealogical context is is to um, you know, set up your hypotheses, uh, take a, a DNA test to kind of, you know, test the fa family relationship, and uh, and then also try and combine the results with uh, with you know historical evidence to look at um, if I mean if you're, for example, if you're being given a result that that traces you back to um, you know Kenya or or you know South Africa or something like that, it's it's really not likely that that um, that 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 is a, an accurate result in you know in that you, in that your your ancestors came from those places because they simply weren't places that were involved in in the transatlantic um, trade. So in in that case, you need to go back and think again and think well, you know, there's there's a scientific reason for which, for why you would be given that result, and that's that um, if you're looking at uh, at haplogroups, groups, if you're looking at uniparental markers, they they can be spread across. Uh, large regions of um, you know of uh, of West Africa or of uh, you know even even further than that across the continent or across the different continents. So you know that that's one thing is that uh, often there's a where if you if you do uh, a uh, mitochondrial DNA test or a, or a Y chromosome DNA test, that there, there is often a process of uh, looking at the results and picking the ones which seem most likely, uh, you know, for for a customer in in the U.S., but this this doesn't mean that uh, that you're being given a, a concrete result and you can go away with that and say, well, you know, this is who I am. And the other, you know, some of the other questions are that uh, you know, the at the moment um, databases are, uh, are, are seem to be skewed towards certain countries because um, when when companies uh, construct a DNA test, they are um, having to rely on on reference populations. So what they're doing is comparing your um, your DNA to a bank of of, uh, of different populations, which are supposedly sort of typical of of, uh, of specific regions. And uh, so you know, to be able to get that um, kind of physically have those reference populations, you need to have gone to different countries and you need to have sampled people. And to be able to label those samples, um, you know, you need to have quite a nuanced uh, 
uh, notion of, of uh, where people come from and and um, you know what their what their own genealogy genealogy is. But there's also the question of um, of you know the the logistics of getting those samples. So for some some countries would just be a lot easier to get samples in than others. So places like Cameroon um, are quite oversampled because. Uh, because it, it's a relatively safe country, you know, perhaps there's, there's better, um, uh, you know, there's better contacts with uh, with local researchers who can help with the sampling process. You know, for whatever reason, um, that means that that statistically you're more likely to get a result um, from, you know, that traces you to Cameroon. Although actually, uh, other neighbouring countries um, or you know other parts of the region were actually much uh, more heavily involved in in the uh, transatlantic uh, trade. So, so you know, there's uh, there are all these different issues, and and I think aside from that, um, you know, you, there there is a more kind of philosophical question of of you know what does this uh, current identity? How does that relate to me and you know the way that I'm living right now, and here I'm not just talking about um, about tracing your identity to you know, tra sorry tracing your ancestry to West Africa, but you know, to to anyone anywhere in the world, and um, you know people can get very excited about uh, finding that they have Native American ancestry, for example, or you know in in in, in the same way in uh, Europe at the moment, um, in the UK there's a there's a certain craze about uh, the idea of, of finding out that you have Viking ancestry, which is just crazy, because you know, well, what can you do with that anyway? You know, what, what, <laughs> what, how does that, how right, does that add to right. your, your sense of identity? So, right. In a, in well, one of the, I, Sarah, I just want to tell you, we're we're getting almost to the end of the show, and I know okay. you want to say just a couple of minutes, say something about your research and how people can contact you. But there is a comment coming out that I just want to read. It's from uh, Shannon, and, and he states that one's identity is shaped by many more factors than ancestry and genetics. Identity is shaped by personal experience and the culture in which one was raised rather than the individual is living within or against that culture's norm. So that's just uh, something that, um, you know, I felt that you, you will want to hear uh, from Shannon. So tell us what you're hoping to do and how people can contact you. Okay. Yeah, I just first wanted to say, you know, I couldn't have put it better myself. So thank you for that, Shannon. And uh, so uh, as I said, you know, I've got another month left here in uh, in D.C. and in, in uh, the U.S. in general. So what I'm looking for, um, you know, to kind of complete my my field work and to to um, to com complete my my overall research, including uh, the field work that I did in Brazil, is uh, I'm looking for for participants. So I'm looking to speak to people who've taken a DNA ancestry test and and who are interested in exper in, in sharing their experiences. In total, I'm I'm hoping to to speak to around 40 to to 50 different people and. Um, my, you know, my focus is mainly on African Americans because I'm, I'm looking at this um, in, you know, in line with, uh, with the, the history of, of the, uh, of the transatlantic uh, trade and the, you know, the history of, of, um, of, uh, you know, African descendant identity in, in different parts of, of the Americas. But, you know, in general, 
if uh, I, I'm very happy to speak to other people who are interested in discussing their results and their interpretations. So uh, for anyone who's interested in, in uh, taking part in my study, the kinds of questions that, that I'll be asking are, um, are about, you know, what, what motivated you to take a test, what, what questions you were hoping to answer by, by taking uh, a DNA ancestry test, how, how did you choose your company and, and the project, and what was your reaction to the results? You know, what did you do with that information afterwards? And so overall, by, by talking to different people and, and getting these different perspectives and, and, and discovering these, you know, these different DNA narratives, I'm hoping to, uh, to learn more about ancestry testing as a, a social practice and, and to be able to find out more about how our, our culture influences our expectations regarding the results and what we do with them. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very new technology and, um, and the industry has only been around for, for less than 15 years. So this is really one of the, the first social studies that's been, that's been done on the topic. And then I really think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a really good opportunity to, to take part of in, in, in a piece of research that will hopefully allow us to understand this phenomenon and also, you know, hopefully to make some recommendations to improve the way that, uh, that DNA ancestry tests are, are being marketed and the way that they're being sold and, and also to make sure that um, the public are not misinformed about, about the, the way that the tests are constructed and, and the way that they, they can be used. And how can they contact you? Okay, so uh, for anyone that's interested in getting in touch, you, the best way is to email me. So my email address is sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at eurotask, that's E-U-R-O-T-A-S-T, dot E-U for Europe. So once again, that's sarah at eurotask, dot E-U. Okay, well, Sarah, I certainly want to thank you for taking uh, – enormous amount of time tonight to discuss this topic. Uh, it, it, it's something that I think maybe all of us might want to just one day just sit down and have a dialogue about DNA testing, uh, what impact the transatlantic slave trade has had in various countries, and the impact that it's having here, and, and how can we... Uh, Talk about genetic testing and, and what does that really mean to us when it comes to our identity. So thank you so very much. I'd like to just say, you know, good night to everyone. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page as well as AfroGenius. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, everyone, and thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you.